Welcome to Friendship Baptist Church's podcast. We might be a small town church, yes, but we are seeing God-sized movement all around us. This podcast is meant to share that movement. It's meant to encourage you throughout your day, and it's to simply be a means to giving God glory. He is so deserving of that glory today. We thank you for being a part of our show today and listening to today's episode. We hope you are blessed by it and that you are moved by the Spirit of God. This is your host, Brother Jerry Horine, and I look forward to today's message. Hello and welcome to episode number 20 here at Friendship Baptist Church's podcast. We're so excited that you're here again, once again. I hope that you have had a blessed uh, Christmas. We are recording this on uh, December the 27th, so two days after Christmas in 2018. And so I'm so excited that that, uh, we've been able to celebrate Christmas. We had a wonderful Christmas Eve service at our church. So for those that were able to be there, thank you so much for being there. And uh, it was just an exciting time. And what a unique way to look at uh, the Christmas story from Joseph's perspective. And, and I hope it's something that sticks with you forever. And I hope uh, you you were able to grow in that very much. And so, uh, yes, it's been an exciting week. Last week, we talked about five ways we can be used in God's kingdom every single week. And we looked at uh, what that meant concerning guests and how uh, we can invite guests and love on guests and welcome guests and, and all the things concerning that. Today, I want to take a, uh, the next step in a sense. And so last week, we talked about guests. Well, once uh, the reason we want guests so much is because we want people to come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And so then once that happens, when they come to know Christ as their Lord and Savior, or when when a Christian that, that is real immature in their faith, that, that's never really been took and trained in the faith, and and so uh, that, that's, that describes a majority of today's Christians right there. Just let me be clear about that. And so, uh, and probably even describes some of us. And so as we look at that, I want us to think about what it means to disciple, what it means to to take someone from that those beginning stages in their faith and, and walk with them and grow close to them. But ultimately, uh, between the two of you, you both grow closer to the Lord. And, and we call that discipleship. It's, it's so uh, dense throughout the scriptures. It's everywhere. When you look at the New Testament, you see over and over again, not only in the New Testament, but the Old Testament, you see you see Moses with Joshua, you see Elijah with Elisha, you see uh, Paul with Timothy, you see Barnabas even with Paul. And so the sense of, of, of discipleship has been so evident in the scriptures from the very beginning. It is certainly uh, God's command for us. He, he told us to make disciples. And so we are to do that, but we do that by teaching them to observe all that he commanded us. And so, so I am in the business of making disciples, and I hope you join me in the business of making disciples because that is God's, that is Christ's command to me and you. And so when we look at discipling, uh, there, there's a really neat resource that I've uh, used for a good while now, and it's called A Call to Joy, A Call to Growth. It's it's a, a material that Billy Hanks Jr. actually writes, and it's pretty much a simple uh, guide to discipling. And so you take a, your discipler through it, and, and uh, you're the discipler, and you have a disciplee. And so one's called a discipler, one's called a Timothy. And so we are to uh, go through that and you, you grow this great friendship. I've done it over and over again. My wife has done it. We've done it in, in uh, previous churches. And it's just such a phenomenal thing that happens when, when we have people going beside one another as the scripture tells us to, to, to grow closer to one another. And so to do this, to open this up, I'll actually want to give you some of uh, Billy, Billy Hanks Jr.'s 
uh, stuff himself. He actually does a workshop, and it's called Operation Operation Multiplication. And his whole ordeal is is that we're not to add to the kingdom through addition, but through multiplication. And that is what Christ did, and that's what we are called to do. And so the whole idea is to make disciples. And he does this workshop, and he's got it on on CD. And so I just wanted to give you a little insight into this into this uh, uh, workshop. I actually want to give you the material itself. And so as we will close up here, I want to add. Um, portions of this on onto the podcast and so i'm excited about you having this opportunity let me warn you it is long there are four different kind of uh episodes in a sense and each one's around an hour and so uh, it can get lengthy but it is a very <laughs> it is well well worth your time and so so it's it's just so uh edifying and, and it, it'll It'll inspire you, convict you, and, and build you up all at the same time. And so the first one that we're going to look at today is the vision for making disciples. And this is kind of the introduction to the whole thing is, is we are to have a vision. We should have a vision, a desire, a passion, a pursuit to make disciples. And he goes into what that means and, 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 and how we're commanded to do that. And so that's what today will be about. And then next week, we're going to look at the power of an evangelistic multiplication, kind of what I was getting at earlier, the, the multiplying rather than adding. And, and then the, the third week, we'll look at equipping disciple makers. That is hopefully you and me, that we would equip them. And fourth, we'll kind of throw in a thing of assimilating new members. We're having new members at our church. God's growing our church. And I have a prayer and, and a desire and a passion to see these new members not just uh, become pew setters. I want them to be involved and active in the ministry that God has called them to be. And, and for that to happen, they need mature Christians that, that are walking in their faith to, to walk beside them and to, to disciple them, to build them up. And so that's what this is all about. I'm excited about this. I hope that you would, uh, uh, listen prayerfully as you listen to Billy Hanks Jr. As we continue through this kind of workshop together, I'm excited about this. And so would you just listen prayerfully as we, we, uh, consider what Billy Hanks has to say here. It's a blessing to be with you today and to have the opportunity to fellowship in our Lord Jesus Christ. And I trust that uh, those of us here and those who will be listening by the tape that's being produced today will be equally blessed as we focus together on the things of our Savior. How many of you rejoice that He's in your heart today? Isn't that the greatest privilege of life? What we're going to talk about today is how to help new believers grow and how to help them learn to share Christ naturally. Our research over these last probably 25 years has indicated that new Christians are the most natural witnesses that any church has. And if we do a good job of encouraging them and equipping them, they'll do a good job of telling their friends and loved ones about the Lord. And if we don't do a good job of that, it's our own fault, not theirs, because they're expecting us to lead them as new believers. So I'd like to call your attention to a number of biblical principles, and we'll start in the Gospel of John. If you'll turn to John 4, 34, and 35. Some of you may have had the opportunity to be a part of the wonderful delegation that met in Amsterdam 
some time ago. At Billy Graham's uh, invitation and initiative, Christians of every denomination from 209 countries met together to talk about finishing the Great Commission. And about 10 days were invested in over 900 seminars and plenary sessions on how do we finish the task in every language, every nation, every culture in the world. And I believe that when we left that meeting, I know for me definitely it was true, there was a very clear mandate that the time has come to wind it up. It's time to finish the job. We've been going at it a long time. And there are a good many Christians in every country of the world, and millions and millions in some countries. But we have a tremendous job yet before us to finish the task. Now, how are we going to reach them? They can either be reached through addition or through multiplication. Many years ago, in Berlin, Germany, at the First World Congress on Evangelism, I was a steward or an intern with the Graham Association. And I was stationed there along with my wife to work in preparation for that wonderful meeting. And there were two clocks in the entryway, one that was moving quite slowly, it was marked addition, and the other that was moving rapidly, and it was marked multiplication. And this was a vivid reminder to everyone who came in because research had been done to estimate the number of physical births in the world and the number of people who were joining churches all over the world every day, and then they worked it down to every hour. Now, joining a church does not make us a Christian. We all know that, right? Being a church member doesn't make you a child of God. Being a born-again person makes you a child of God, receiving Christ as your Savior. However, because we're not able to see the hearts of people, the scientists just took the additions to church membership and made that clock move at that speed. And I think they looked at about 70 or more denominations in order to come up with their numbers. And then they took the world birth, the population explosion that was taking place and still is, the physical multiplication of the birth of newborn children. And you could see one clock moving very slowly and, and the other one almost spinning. And I sat there as a young Christian studying that, looking at it in my 20s, and I thought, if we don't change the way the church does evangelism, we'll never be able to catch up with the birth rate. Now that was common sense. And that's the reason they had the two clocks there to vividly state that to every delegate who came from around the world. Unfortunately, the message has been slow to be internalized by the church. Seminaries, colleges, the places where we receive our training for the ministries that we do, have been slow to turn the corner and to say, we've got to teach our people how to live a life of spiritual multiplication. I'd like for you to coin that phrase and for it to become a part not only of your vocabulary, but your prayer life. Because we need to pray that our individual churches and denominations that we represent would begin to think in terms of multiplication rather than traditional addition. Now, in the early days of the faith, we did multiply. That's how we went from being a group of 120 in the upper room, 500 at the ascension, 
to several millions in two and a half centuries when we brought the Roman Empire to its knees. We multiplied. In those years, we didn't have seminaries, beautiful church buildings like the one we're meeting in today. We didn't have nice Bibles like the one that we're holding in our hands that have gold leaf or tabs and a concordance in the back. Early Christians didn't have the benefit of any of this. No buildings, no Bibles, no places for higher education. And yet, they reached countless thousands and millions for Christ in that first two and a half centuries. No budgets, no buses, no satellites. Are you all with me in what I'm trying to tell you? You see, they had the purest elementary thing in the world. They had all they needed to carry out the Great Commission. They had the truth. They had Christ in their heart. They were empowered by the Spirit of God. And love compelled them to tell others about the Savior. Today, we are placing too much dependence upon methodology and all of the things that we have to work with. And we're not putting enough dependence and focus upon that which the early Christian community had, which we also have, but which is buried, so to speak, under all of the rest of this. You and I could be dropped out of a plane on an island with nothing but our Bible and a few clothes and a little food and become missionaries. Because we have what we need. We have Christ, our Lord and our Master. We have the Holy Spirit to teach us and the Word of God that's quick and powerful and sharper than what? Any two-edged sword. Now, we need to understand we have the greatest opportunity that history's ever known. Not only do we have all that the early believers have, but we have airplanes to travel around. We have cell phones, the internet. We have every communication skill available more than any other group of Christians in the history of the world. But we cannot depend upon that. We've got to stay with the basic biblical principles if we want to succeed at our mission. Are you with me? On a light note, when I was in London many years ago, I was in my early 20s when the Graham Association took me on the train and how kind they were to do that. Billy was being interviewed by the British Broadcasting Company and a lot of other folks in Great Britain, newspapers and so forth. And so they slipped me in through the kitchen. Grady Wilson was discipling me at that time and Grady was like, I guess Billy's right hand or left hand associate, whichever you'd want to say. He and T.W. and the others on the team. And they did this frequently. They'd slip me in where I, as a young person, could listen. And I was fascinated as they would penetrate and hit Billy with all these hard, cynical statements. But one stood out to me very clearly. A fellow stood up and he said, Dr. Graham, we've been told that the clerics in part of Great Britain feel that you've set Christianity back 200 years by your simple, basic, elementary preaching about the blood and the cross of Jesus Christ. Well, I watched Billy's face, the puzzlement in his eyes as this started, and then the twinkle in his eye that came as it continued. 
He's quick on his feet, and the Holy Spirit gives him a wonderful way of responding. And I've seen him do it as you've seen him do it so many times in interviews like this on television. He took all this in, and then when the man finished, he said, Sir, I'm so glad you've said this, because I need to apologize to the ministers of Great Britain if I have set Christianity back 200 years by coming here and by my simple preaching. For I came to set it back 2,000 years, sir. Now, when he said that, it hit the newspapers the next morning. And I thought about it many times. Isn't that what we really need to see happen? Don't we want to go back and get back to the basics of what made it work 2,000 years ago so that it shook cities, families, empires, and all of the world finally came to the place of bowing their knee and humbling their heart before the humble carpenter of Galilee. God the Son, who came to us and became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld His glory. Take a look at what He says now in our text. John 4, verse 34. My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of Him who sent me. And look at these next several words. And to, say it with me, finish His work. Now whatever translation you have, the meaning is the same. There was a work that Jesus came to do, and He came to do it and finish it. Starting a work is fine, but finishing it is better. And God is looking for people that will be faithful to the finish. He's not looking for good starters. He's looking for good finishers. The world's full of history of people who start things and don't finish. Christianity is not going to be one of those. We're called to be finishers. The Father had sent the Son to do a work, and on the cross, as you well remember, in agony, at the very end, He looked up toward heaven and said, say it with me, it is finished. And it was. And when the veil ripped in the Holy of Holies in the temple in Jerusalem, as He spoke those words, it was that we as human mankind would never forget that the work was finished. And so it was the Holy Spirit left the historic Judaic home symbolically. And the Apostle Paul said no longer would that be the Holy of Holies, but we would become the temple. And now the Spirit of God lives where? In the heart of every one of us as born-again believers. So it is. Jesus finished a work, but then He gave us a work to do. He gave us soon after that in His resurrected appearance, what we call the Great Commission. We were told to take the gospel throughout all the world. Ministers were told to preach it. That's Matthew 24, 14. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world as a witness unto every nation. But lay people and ministers were told to witness it. Acts 1, 8. And when the power of the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be my what? My witnesses. In Jerusalem, you'll do it. Judea, you'll do it. Samaria, and finally, you'll do it in the uttermost parts of the earth. 
And so it is that God has called us as the church, both preachers and all members, participants, in the glorious mission of carrying out this work and finishing it. He has given us a job to do and an assignment that is the greatest privilege of all of history. For we get to be a part of taking the glorious good news of the Savior to the countless millions of our generation who need Him and are waiting for the water of life and the bread of life. And you say, well, how well are we doing it? I take you on a little mental journey with me back to London for a moment. While there, Peter Goodwin Hudson, a young Church of England evangelist, invited me out to lunch. He knew that I was a North American and I happened to be a Baptist, if, if for no other reason, because I'm from Texas. Y'all, it's hard to be in Texas and not least be a Baptist or a Methodist, all right? Because there's so many there. But he said, Billy, I understand that you are a Baptist evangelist. And he said, I am Church of England. He said, I've invited you out to lunch because I want to ask a question. He said, um, what percentage of the laity and your churches in North America lead anyone to Christ in a normal year? Well, it just broke my heart when he asked that question. I said, Peter, I wish that you'd ask me how much we give to missions. I wish that you'd ask how many come to our evangelism conferences. I wish you'd ask a hundred other questions, but not that question. For what is the percentage of the membership of our churches that leads someone to faith in Christ. Now, I don't know the assembly statistic on this, and I don't know the United Methodist statistic on this, but I do know Southern Baptist statistic on this. And so I can tell you, since we've been keeping records, we have never surpassed 5% of our congregation leading anyone to Christ in a normal year. And tragically, in recent decades, and recent years, that number is probably more realistically between two and a half and three percent. And that means that's including all of the 44 to 46,000 pastors, plus all of the staff members, plus all of the collegiate workers on university campuses, all of the home missionaries in America. Are you with me? It's putting all of the people that are in full-time vocational paid Christian work together and the people they've led to Christ in order to come up with two and a half to three percent. What does that really mean? That the members of the church, who are what we call the laity, probably are not winning but about one out of a hundred leading anyone to Christ in a year. Well, Peter was eating and sipping a cold drink as we talked, and he looked stunned. He said, I am absolutely shocked. He said, in Great Britain, we look upon Baptists as being some of the most evangelistic people there are. And he said, we, Church of England folk, were trying to stabilize the church, hoping that you would do the evangelizing. I smiled at Peter and I said, go back and tell your people to get back to work. I said, because they can't depend on Baptists to do it. This is the mission of every child of God. So the need is tremendous. Now, I come from a ranching family out in West Texas, 
and both mother and dad come from ranching backgrounds. My father was in the wool business for years. And I can tell you this. If you have a hundred sheep, and let's just say that they're all ewes. If you have a flock with a hundred sheep, and they only give you one or two lambs a year, you're bankrupt in a season. You're out of business. Are you hearing me? Why is it that Great Britain has gone in a century from being a great towering, sending base for evangelism and missions, and today less than 7% of its population can be found worshiping in a church or even a mosque or synagogue which are not Christian? But the statistic is 7% of the nation's population. Make it 55 or 6% if you want to make it just Christians that are going to church on Sunday. What happened? A century and a quarter ago, Spurgeon was having to knock the walls out of the church building to have bigger crowds. And yet today, that isn't true. Why the decline in the faith? Why is it if you go to Europe that you find very few believers struggling, small churches? Are you, are you feeling this at all? Canon Brian Green came to Florida some years ago. I was there, and he stuck out that long, bony finger. I'll never forget his piercing blue eyes in his 70s as he scanned a crowd of about 1,700 of us, mostly pastors and laymen, and said, Mark my words, you American Christians. If you do not change your methodology, your great church buildings will be as empty in the future as the cathedrals are in Great Britain today. And I made a beeline for England as fast as I could go to study the problem and try to figure out what went wrong. I want to bring you some good news today. I also want to be a stark realist with you. Change is not always for the good. But there is some change that is desperately needed and can be done in this coming decade that can alter the history of Christianity. We have not come here to talk about Tweedledee, Tweedledum. We've come here to talk about the most serious business in the world. And that is reaching the world. England was dependent upon its pulpits. Hear it again. We haven't had anybody that preaches as good as Spurgeon. Now let's just admit it. England was dependent upon great pulpits. Eloquence. But the first Christian movement was not based upon eloquence and great preaching. Although there was preaching and there was teaching. It was a lay movement. It was the people of God telling the story of Jesus. It wasn't 1% doing the work of the 100%. It was a very high percentage doing the work of 100%. We don't know what that percent was, but it was very high. And there was a difference in the way they went about doing things from what we're doing today. We're depending upon pulpit and on small group exclusively. They did something else that we're not doing. Now, I'd like for you to think about what I'm going to say. Jesus went about his ministry in three ways. One on one, one on some, and one on many. He preached to the multitudes. 
He taught the twelve, sometimes the three, but he also won individuals to Christ and ministered to individuals. One-on-one. And when you have somebody that's going to be in a position of responsibility and God wants to prepare them for leadership, any kind of leadership, do you know what happened in the early Christian community? It was a reflection of what we see in the Old Testament. Let's have some fun with this for a minute. How do you think the world would have been affected if God would have spoken to Elijah and said, Elijah, I want you to take some time to train a young man named Elisha. And Elijah said, Father, you've got to know I'm too busy for that. I've got bigger things going on that I've got to do. I'm a busy man. I don't have time for Elisha. Look at all this public ministry that I've got going on. Or if God had said, now Moses, I want you to train Joshua. And Moses said, Father, you've got to know I've got thousands of people I'm looking after. I'm a very busy man. I don't have time to train this young man named Joshua. How would that have impacted Hebrew history? How negatively would it have impacted it? Come further. Barnabas, there's a young man. Oh, he's a knothead. Strong spirit, hard-headed, highly intelligent. Going to be a challenge. But I want you to take your life and pour it into this young Saul of Tarsus. I want you to go down to Antioch and I want you to spend about a year with him. Every time you preach, let him be there. Every time you teach him how to share, you listen and critique it. Now, I don't know what God really told him, but I'll tell you what, he wasn't sitting around twiddling his thumbs for a year. And the great Gentile awakening took place in Antioch, and that's where we were first called Christians, by the way. And that's where... Barnabas poured his heart, life, and his wonderful, encouraging spirit. You know, that's what Barnabas means, is encourager. Poured it into the life of this young man, Saul of Tarsus. Now, y'all, when you get to heaven, if you got up there and somebody said, Barnabas, how did you invest your life? He said, well, I was a farmer down in Cyprus. I sold my farm, gave the money to the Lord's work, and I decided to invest my life in ministry. He said, what'd you do? Well, he said, I... I didn't do a whole lot, but I sure did spend a lot of time with a, a little guy down there. Uh, wasn't very tall. Uh, he was young. He'd been kind of tough. He was beating up Christians and putting them in jail. But you know, he turned out pretty good. He could write pretty good. Wrote most of the New Testament. How many of y'all feel like it'd be a good day's work to have trained the Apostle Paul? You see, there's nothing more significant than we can do then obey God. And when God says that we need to disciple some folk, we better get after it. And if you're too busy to be obedient, you're too busy to succeed. Don't give me any excuses about being too busy. If Moses could do it, Elijah could do it, Barnabas could do it, and then Paul could do it. But who else did it? Our Lord. Now take a look at Paul for a minute. Paul comes into an area and he's constantly got his antenna up. He's looking for good guys to train. And he gets down to an area and he's wide open. He's got some time available. Now the deal is being discipled by Paul is fairly difficult. The hotel accommodations were poor. 
He spent a lot of time in jail, very little golf, and the meals were often a little bit sparse. It wasn't easy to be discipled by the Apostle Paul, is what I'm trying to tell you. And you couldn't do it on your terms. You had to travel with him on his terms, which in his case were God's terms. And he finds Timothy this way. He didn't lead Timothy to Christ. Others had had the privilege of doing that, namely Lois and Eunice. But he discovers that Timothy is a man of good report among the brethren, which means the fellow believers in Lystra and Iconium. So he says, I'll chance this young man. I'll give him the most important thing I've got. Now let's make a note of this. The most valuable thing in your life and mine that we have is called T-I-M-E. Because when you run out of it, you run out of L-I-F-E. All right? The most valuable thing you can give somebody is not money. They might think that that's true, but it isn't. It's time. And so Paul says, I'll invest my time in the life of this fine young man, Timothy. Timothy responds, travels with Paul, as did Titus, whom Paul called my son in the common faith. Peter did the same thing with young John Mark after he'd blown it trying to travel with Paul, and it was too tough. He went back to mother in Jerusalem. So Peter picks up John Mark. Now, why would John Mark be a good person for Peter to disciple? Did Peter know what it was to blow it? I mean, had he had tasted failure? Whew, he could write the book about it. Why did John Mark have the privilege probably of writing our first gospel? Most theologians feel that Mark was written first. Why? Because it was the memoirs of Peter. And Peter, of course, was the apostle who was giving leadership to the Jewish church. He and James. Now, Peter pours his life into John Mark. Did John Mark turn out good? I'm telling you he did. And let me tell you, there's no gospel according to Timothy. Y'all think about it. Timothy was straight arrow. He never had a problem. A little bit of fear, that's it. John Mark really blew it. But God is a God of second chances. Peter picks him up and he becomes the great writer of the gospel of Mark and a mighty man of God. And Paul tells us that he had great confidence in him at the end. Paul even wanted Mark to come and be with him years later. I'm glad for that. How many of you are glad that God is a God of redemption and love and second chances? Amen. 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 Now, do you think John Mark would have become the man that he did if he hadn't had the influence of Peter? I don't think there's a chance he would have. He needed Peter. Iron sharpens iron, and we sharpen each other. Parenthetically, I've never met a mature Christian. Have you? All I know is maturing Christians. I've run around with a lot of godly guys, but I want to tell you something. They're all beginners. We're all babes, we're all growing together, and we all stumble, and we all need each other. When I'm 80, I hope to have somebody 90 discipling me. You say, Billy, you mean you still have people doing that in your life? Absolutely. As you freely receive, freely do what? Freely give. The way the Christian pattern works 
is that a new believer comes into the faith and the new believer should be adopted by someone in one of our churches who loves God and can be a good role model. And Titus chapter 2 says that the older women are to do that for the young women. And then we just see all kinds of biblical examples of men doing it for the young men. That's what Paul Timothy was all about. This is normal, standard operating procedure in the church. Or it was. Now, as the church became more institutionalized, about the third century, you began to see a breakdown in this pattern began to develop. And we lose it completely in Catholicism. It, it just sort of disappears. And then you began to see a change back in this direction beginning to develop about the turn of the century. And a book was written by a man named Trina. And he began to talk about how Jesus had trained people. And then others began to pick it up and see it and talk about it. More books were written. A man named Dawson Trotman came along. And he saw how this could work with the laity. And God greatly blessed his ministry. And that's why we have a whole organization called the Navigators today. Bill Bright and others began to see it. And before long, theologians, Robert Coleman wrote the fabulous book, The Master Plan of Evangelism, and explained to us how the mentoring process was a part of training people to share their faith naturally. And so it is that little by little, in this last century, it's taken about 100 years, our eyes have been opened to the fact that we've got to get back to the basics, back to the way the early Christian community did it. Now, every one of you that's a mother, now there's a number of ladies here that have had children, know that there is a great joy in mentoring and teaching and loving and nurturing a child, right? Do you know that there is a great joy spiritually in doing the same thing? There's a joy there. Paul didn't have physical children, but he talked about his children all the time. He loved his children. They were his great fulfillment. And so it is with us. There isn't a day that goes by that I don't pray for and think about my two daughters all through the day, every single day. They may not know it. Sometimes I, I wonder if they really comprehend how much I love them and how often I pray for them. But the Father knows. Now let me ask you this. Do you have people spiritually that you love along these lines? Every pastor should have time to be training somebody to be the Joshua. You may not have led that person to Christ. You may have adopted them. That's what Paul did with Timothy. Or you may have led them to Christ. And then it's definitely your responsibility to disciple them. In traditional, everyday, normal church life, how does it work? When someone joins your church, however they do that, and says, I have given my life to Christ, there should be some counseling, there should be some ministry that takes place in prayer with them, some explanation so they'll come to a knowledge that they really belong to God and that they can have that peace in their heart. But after that, that's just the birth experience. Now comes a whole lifetime of training. You say, a lifetime? Yep. The relationship is quite structured for the first probably six months. And then after that, it becomes a friendship and a colleagueship. Now, I've done this with 31 men, and my 32nd is here with me right now, David Trump. 
And the 31 men that I've done it with over the last probably 35 years, some have stayed with me a short time, some have stayed quite a long time, several years. But it all depends on what I was training them to do. And if I was just training them to be a good Christian and to be an active, on-fire businessman, it didn't take quite as long. But the ones that wanted to be discipled to be a missionary on the foreign field or to be a professor in a seminary, some of those men, I, I took years. Some of the guys have stayed with me seven, eight, ten years. But when I look at where they are today and what they're doing with their lives, it's the greatest joy I have next to my own children. Are you with me? You see... God wants us to have children and great-grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren all over the place. And it comes out of the natural flow of your life. Not the institution of the church, as important as that is. Each one of us has an individual ministry within the corporate ministry of the churches we serve. Every child you have in your home is going to be different by personality, the genes make it so, right? If any of you had two or three children, you know, you'll think, how did this happen? How could this child be this way and this child be this way and this child be this way? And I love them all, but they're all different. And when you disciple people in the Lord, it's the same way. There'll be a new Christian and you'll think, boy, if you're a lady, you train this girl because the Bible says that ladies work with ladies and men with men along these lines. And you'll work with this girl and you'll have this wonderful experience and you'll think there could never be anything sweeter than this. And sure enough, somebody else will come along totally different. You'll work with them and you'll say, well, in its own way, that was even richer than this, but I, I guess I just can't compare them. Because each discipling relationship is a jewel of its own beautiful, wonderful value and worth. Matthew 4.19, would one of you read that out loud for us? It's a verse you know by memory. Matthew 4.19. Amen. How simple, how pure. Come and just follow me, and I'll make you a fisher of men. Do you notice he didn't say, come and sit? Now this was training, and I want to make a difference between training and teaching for you today. Here, there is one person being trained out of all of you that are here today. And that one person is David Trump, who's sitting back there in the back. David, wave at him just for a sec. Okay. David's 21, going on 22, and he's here to be trained. I will be talking with David about, and he'll be talking with me, about what I said today, what I didn't say, why I said it, why I didn't say it. Because I'm teaching David how to speak. You say, well, why in the world would you do that? Because my wife told me to. That's... Uh, our nephew. But Carol Ann said, Honey, while you're training David, be sure and give some quality time to how to speak. Now, when I first went to Australia as an intern with BGA, I was critiqued after being there for three months, and it just broke my heart. And uh, Walter Smith, who was with the team for so many years, sat down with me at the dugout at the showgrounds there at the stadium in, in Sydney and said, Billy, I've critiqued your work while you've been here, and they've asked me never to send you back again. I said, oh, no. What did I do? I must have embarrassed the, the team. I, what it, was it bad doctrine? Uh, you know, did I do something? Was I late for meetings? I mean, what did I do? 
They said, I'm sorry, Bill, but they just says you can't speak the king's English. They said you were reared on a ranch in West Texas and you say can't and get and they can't understand you. So I was crying and while I was, man, I was down. And Grady Wilson came up and put his arm around me and he said, Billy, he said, I taught Billy Graham to speak English and I'll teach you how. <laughs> and Grady took the next three years to relentlessly work on get instead of get. You know, and he would help me with the colloquialisms so that I wouldn't be purely West Texas. And then Ruth Graham was kind enough to put in her two cents along the line. And do you know, in three years, I went back in fear and trembling, but I went back again, and they received me with loving, open arms. Now, you say, well, you mean discipleship gets into things like that? Yes. The Lord wants to take new believers, and you need to find out with them what their destiny is. Now, you do know the word in this verse, Ephesians 2.10. We were created in Christ Jesus, what? Unto good works, which God foreordained. It's a Presbyterian verse. That you should walk in them. Alright? Now, God has a plan for every new Christian's life. Every one of them is special. Every one of them is important. And we need to help them develop their God-given resources. Their gifts, their abilities, their talents. And help them be a well-rounded, happy, fulfilled child of God and servant of God. And if the problem has to be with self-discipline and dieting, which is one of my problems, I ate two cookies last night at the Double Tree. I shouldn't have had but one, and I knew it. Have you all eaten at the Double Tree or stayed there? They give you cookies when you come, big cookies. And I'm dieting, and I shouldn't have done it. I've been guilty ever since. I've had to ask the Lord's forgiveness. But... By the way, I live on a diet. I don't know about the rest of you, but it's endless. And lest you're worrying about this button, I can see some of you ladies eyeing it. This came off yesterday, and I couldn't find a needle and thread, and I've never, I had never sewed on a button in my life. I'll just be honest. So last night, we went out and bought a needle and thread at the hotel. And David and I couldn't thread the needle. We sat there forever trying to get the thread in the needle. Well, we finally got it done. Big effort. We, I was so proud. We got the thing sewed on. I called my wife and I said, Honey, we've sewed on the button. This is my only coat on this trip. And she laughed and she said, I bet it won't hold. It's going to come off because you didn't put a knot in the end. And so help me. A few minutes ago when I stood up, boom, off comes the button. She said, Ask a lady to help you. So ladies... Help. Okay. Now, when somebody comes along and they join your Bible study group, they join your fellowship, some of you need to adopt them. You need to just make them your friend. Make them your ministry. And as you pull along next to them, it's very much like Proverbs 13.20. The scripture says, He that walks with wise men shall become what? Wise. So if they want to grow in the Lord and get some spiritual wisdom, hang around with somebody that's got a little. And all of us have some to give. Now we're growing, so we can't give more than we have, but we give what we've got. And God will be pleased if we do that much. See, some of you say, well, when I really get to the place in my life where, then I'll disciple somebody. You'll never get there. 
If I'm walking across a yard and there's a little puppy that comes and yips at my heel, that'll make me walk a little faster. And if you're discipling somebody and they're watching you, I guarantee you'll live better. You'll do better. You'll be more disciplined if somebody is looking to you as their example and you feel a responsibility. It is a built-in accountability factor for your own moral, ethical, and spiritual purity to have somebody that you are being a leader for in their spiritual life. Got to tell you a cute story. Carol Ann is my sweetheart's name, my lovely wife. And Carol Ann is blessed that our board of directors in the ministry sends her any place in the world that I go at their expense anytime she wants to go. There's never a time that Carol Ann cannot be with me if she so desires. So she prays about it and she picks the places that she feels led to go. Aspen, Switzerland, you know. Um, she's very Hawaii <laughs> last year. Uh, so wherever I'm ministering, she gets to pick where she wants to go with me. Well, it was funny. She went to Aspen with me and I was doing a Bible conference there in Colorado. And while there, I said, do y'all have anybody in the church who could... And y'all is okay, y'all. That's, that's one word we left. Um, a little bit of Texas. So, is there anyone here can, that can teach us how to fish for fish while we're teaching you how to fish for men? Oh, they said, we've got an excellent fisherman in the congregation. And he would be delighted to teach you how to fish. Well, Carol Ann had never caught a trout, and I didn't know how to do fly fishing. And he was an expert fly fisherman. So he put us in waders. It was a snowy day. Snow was coming down. We went to the Roaring Fork River, which is a fairly good-sized river, and very cold. I mean, really cold. So he said, lesson number one, do not fall. <laughs> he said, you'll freeze. But he said, you're going to have fun catching some trout. He showed us, not told us how, but showed us, demonstrated how to tie the fly, how to flick and cast that fly out and miss the aspen trees. And there was a big rock right out there that you could see. And he said, Carol Ann, I want you to flick your fly out three times behind that particular rock. He said, there's a large trout that lives there and it will take it on the third cast. <laughs> well, you know, he made it sound so simple that like anybody could just do it three times, go behind that rock, you catch this big trout. And I'm thinking, if this happens, I'm not going to believe it. He said, now let me explain that the first time the fly lands, it will disturb the trout. The second time, it will have his attention, and if he's hungry, he'll get excited about it, and the third time is when he'll get serious and take it. I just didn't believe it. So I watched. Boom, boom, boom. Caroline got it out there three times. Third time, whoomp, that trout took it. And I'm just saying, this is just unbelievable. So, and it was the only third cast in her life. So, he gets the net and this huge trout. We get it. We take a picture of it. I'm hungry already. Or I'm looking at this trout. I said, is this a keeper? And he said, man. He said, that's bigger than a keeper. But he said, Billy, I'm a little disappointed in you. I said, I, I just couldn't read it. I said, you, you are? He said, would you eat a friend? I said, I guess not. So he took the, the hook out of the trout's mouth and said, Charlie, go back and get ready for another tourist. 
And he let the trout go. And the trout went back behind that big rock, so help me. I'd never seen anything like it. Now, we caught seven trout in about the next 30 minutes, and he knew four of them, and he named the other three. I said, how many years have you been fishing in these waters? He said, 30 years. I said, have you ever eaten a trout? He said, no, they're all my buddies. Now, I felt like I was fishing with somebody that had a knowledge so far beyond the norm that it would be like going witnessing with the Lord. When Jesus went out and was teaching the men how to fish for men, He knew their thoughts. He knew their habits. He knew their patterns. The Bible says that God even knows the number of hairs on our head, and that keeps Him real busy with me because it's a decreasing number. And uh, He knows all about us. And what a privilege, what a joy, what an honor to get to learn to fish for men with the master fisherman that ever fished. Peter wasn't the big fisherman. The Lord was the big fisherman. Just as he was the great physician. Now you and I do not have that intimate knowledge, but let me tell you something, the Holy Spirit does. And he will tell us. Yesterday we were at a restaurant. A young man came up to David. Out of the blue. Sat down by David. Knelt down by him, a waiter, and talked to him and asked spiritual questions and wanted some help from David about a problem that he was having in his life. Never knowing that David had solved that problem not too long ago in his own life. And David was perfectly ready to help him. Now who knew that this young man could help that young man? The Lord who made them both. Heaven and earth belongs to the Lord. And all they that dwell therein. Psalm 24.1 we live in an environment where the only reason that we're not winning more people to Christ is simply because we're not praying for the opportunity to witness. Now, I want to restate that. We live in a culture and an environment where people are wide open, ready. There are broken hearts, tender hearts, bleeding hearts, fractured families everywhere up and down the streets. And God knows their need, and He knows that we are believers. All He wants is availability and willingness on our part to be used. James says, you have not because why? You ask not. Now I'm going to jump ahead in the curriculum for a moment and ask you to turn with me to 1 John 5, 14 and 15. This verse is so important that I feel we just mustn't overlook it. And I'll try to illustrate why I think it's so important in just a second. But let's turn there together. 1 John 5, 14 and 15. Now I'm going to read this one to you slowly. This is the confidence that we have in approaching God. How many of you would like to have great confidence in prayer? Great peace and confidence. We can. This is the confidence we have in approaching God. That if we ask anything, According to His will. What does He do? He hears us. Now let's see if we understand what that means. Alright, we can have confidence. And the way we have confidence is if we ask anything according to His will. Now, that doesn't mean, Lord, I don't know what Your will is, so I'm asking for Your will to be revealed. Definitely that's a principle in prayer but that's not what's being taught here. 
What John is saying is you can have confidence if you're asking for something that you know to be the will of God. That's what he's saying. According to what we know to be your will. That's what this really means. For instance, if I know that Acts 1.8 says, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and His power, you will be my witnesses. He didn't say you might be my witnesses. What did He say? You will be my witnesses. Now, if I know that that is the Father's will, that I be His witness, can I confidently pray each morning in my quiet time, Lord, I would like to be empowered today to be the witness that you want me to be. I don't have to say if it be thy will. He's already told me it's his will. All right, Acts 1.8 makes it very clear, doesn't it? Okay, let me talk to preachers for a minute. If you said, all right, if uh, uh, Matthew 24.14, which we've already gone over, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world, and then the end and it will be as a witness to all nations. And then the end will come. Now when God says something will happen, will it happen? You can count on it. You can have confidence. You can just stand on it. Like a rock. And if I'm praying in the morning and I'm a, and I'm a pastor, and I say, Lord, I ask that you would fill me with your spirit, that you would do the preaching through me today, and that my people might hear your word, and that it might be clear, and I want to be hidden behind the cross and not one man to see me, but only see you, only hear you. I'm telling you, get ready for a blessing because He's going to do it. And it won't make any difference if you're sick or well, if your emotions tell you that you're hitting the mark, or they don't tell you that you're hitting the mark. Because feelings are not to be equated with faith. Now, I want to talk real straight to you. We have a little farm in West Texas in the family. It's a lousy farm. I got to tell you, it's so bad that I wouldn't want you to come see it. But I can also tell you this. If I take 365 seed of good seed and I broadcast that seed out on the soil, even though it's pretty lousy soil, and I let the livestock walk over it, I told you we're ranching family, I let the rain do its work, the wind do its work, the sun do its work. You know what's going to happen? I could be the worst farmer that ever farmed, but if there's good seed and half-decent soil and nature does its part, a little wind, a little rain, a little sun, you know what I'm going to have? A little crop. And it would be a miracle if I didn't. Not a miracle if I did, but a miracle if I didn't. You say, well, what in the world are you telling me? 365 days in a year, right? If I, you, or any member of your church prays every morning for a chance to witness, will God be pleased? You better know He'll be pleased. He's been waiting a long time for this. <laughs> Lord, I want to agree with you. That's like Blackaby says. Blackaby's got a good point here. Lord, I agree with you. I want to be used today. Would you please prepare me to witness to someone whose heart is needy and where there's some good soil around? I'd like to plant some seed for you if I'm available. That's really all he's waiting on. 
The only reason why we don't have a spiritual crop with people being saved is only a few of our members are getting the seed out of the barn and broadcasting it. Nothing wrong with seed. Seed's just in the barn. Got to get the seed out of the barn. You say, well, Billy, wait a minute. You make it sound too simple. Well, the trouble of it is, it is that simple. It is that simple. It's love. Love communicates. Love works. Love never fails. And I want to tell you, if you get the seed of God's Word and His love out of the barn and get it to touch the soil, it'll germinate and grow. Who are likely to be the best witnesses in your church? Your new members who are new believers who are coming in and they're saying, teach me. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I'm just a new Christian and I'll do whatever you tell me to do. I was speaking at a large Methodist meeting a few years ago on evangelism and there were two of us that were there and I very much like the other speaker. John Ed Mathis, Fraser Memorial, Methodist Church, Alabama, I believe. And as we got toward the end of the meeting, we asked the guys to get in little circles or groups and kind of critique what they were going to do with what we taught them during the couple days we were there. And I love the sense of humor. One of these fellows raised his hand. He said, well, we figured out what we're going to do. And so we, you know, John had, and I said, well, what are you going to do? He says, we're going to isolate the new believers who come into our church from the existing membership as long as we possibly can. <laughs> now, what did they mean by that? <laughs> they meant that we've got to have a new standard of excellence and it mustn't be represented by the mediocrity and the lukewarmness that has existed in the church. What you want to do is take your new believers and pair them up one-on-one -on -one with a friend who will be a good role model. The best role model that you can possibly give them. If you're going to pair them up with somebody, don't put them with a person that goes to the Ramblin' Rose on Saturday night and goes to church on Sunday morning. You want somebody whose walk and talk are together. And you want somebody who has a prayer life. You want to put them with somebody who does believe the Bible. Carries the Bible, reads the Bible, loves God's Word. And you say, well, we've got a lot of folk like that. Good, let's hook them up and put them with new Christians. That's what they need. How many of you are excited about seeing the application of 14 and 15? Can you see what we're saying here? See, because the Lord says, if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us, whatever it is we ask, we know, not guess, not hope, not think, but we know that we have what we've asked of Him. If I get up in the morning and say, Oh God, I pray that You'll give me the chance to witness to someone today. I have just laid the stage for a yes answer to prayer. It's coming. Now, let me give you a little illustration on this. Some time ago, I got a little concerned about my own life because I, I went for four or five days and I didn't witness to anybody and I didn't know why. I was praying each morning for the chance. No opportunity came. None. And so finally in my quiet time on about the fifth morning, I said, Lord, is there some sin that I need to deal with in my life that I don't, that I'm just not consciously aware of? By the way, are you all still struggling with sin? Yes. Right, let me raise both hands, okay? And I said, Lord, 
maybe, maybe there's something here that I'm just not aware of and you and I need to talk about it and you need to show it to me because nothing's happening in witnessing and I don't understand it. So I prayed about it and, and nothing sort of popped up. Usually there would be. So uh, he'd seem to whisper to my heart, and I don't know how God speaks to you, but usually, to me, it kind of sounds like my own voice if I analyze it. He doesn't scare me and say, now hear this. It's kind of a gentle, my own voice kind of inside of me. And it was kind of like I could tell he was telling me to take three of Billy Graham's booklets and put them in my pocket, Steps to Peace with God, and, and, and take them in my coat or my shirt that day. So I did. Went through the day. It was just with Christians all day. It was a fairly boring day. <clears throat> and uh, didn't get to be with any lost people at all. About 5 o'clock came. We closed the office. Everybody's going home. And Carol Ann had a headache. So she said, honey, would you go out and get us some food tonight instead of my cooking? And, oh, I love her cooking. That's my problem. I love it too much. But in any event, I went out and got a sandwich for both of us at a little truck stop that's not far from where we live on just a little small ranch. And so I went to the truck stop. We know most everybody there. So there was a new waitress, and I sat down on the stool, and the waitress said, uh, where are you going tomorrow? And I said, well, I'm going to Montreat, North Carolina. She said, what are you going to do that for? I said, well, I'm going up there to be with some of the Billy Graham team and hope to see Dr. Graham while we're there, talk about some things. She said, you mean the preacher? I said, yes, he's a preacher. She said, oh, all my life I've wanted to read something that, that he's written. Now the booklets in my pocket were written by Billy Graham. Okay? And it's like, ding. You know, it goes off. I said, oh. <laughs> so I reached in my pocket and I pulled one out and I said, you know, I happen to have something directly from him. It's called Steps to Peace with God and How to Know the Lord. She said, Oh, could I, could I read it? I said, you can do better than that. You can have it. She said, I can have it? I mean, it's like a jewel, you know. And I, I said, yes, I want to let you have it. Well, I, I was paying no attention to anybody but her. Unbeknown to me, the, the cook was behind her. He was a big Hispanic fellow, huge guy. And he was just cooking and listening. In a moment, he put his equipment down walked outside the swinging doors, came around and stood by me where I was on the stool. I looked up and I, I said, you want one of those booklets, don't you? <laughs> That's all I said to him. And he nodded. He didn't speak. He just nodded. I gave him one and he didn't even say thank you. He just nodded and walked back in the kitchen again. That's two. So I was heading for the cash register to pay the bill and take the, the food home to Carol Ann. A waitress that we'd known for a long time was standing behind the cash register pouting. I mean, major pouting. I got to the cash register and I could see she was not a happy camper. I said, you're upset because you didn't get one of the little books, aren't you? And she said, yes, I am. She said, because I need it much worse than those two. So I reached in my pocket, pulled out the third one and gave it to her. And I said, what's the problem? She said, my husband told me yesterday he's going to divorce me and my world has collapsed. And she said, would you please send Carol Ann to talk with me tomorrow? I need her. So I sent Carol Ann to her. And I walked out of the restaurant and I said, thank you, God. 
that this morning you and I talked about being available to be used today as a witness. It won't happen every day is what I'm trying to say, but sometimes he may give you two or three shots in one day. Wow. I mean, are you kidding me? What an amazing testimony that is. What a amazing stuff this is that Billy Hanks has, has gave us here as he's talked about making disciples and the vision for making disciples. And, and as he gave us a, a picture, a, a window into his own life, some of his uh, actual experiences and stories, I, I pray that you are, are blessed by them and that you would continue to uh, look forward to next week as we continue this this workshop with him, as we look at what it means to make disciples, as we, we uh, gather together in that one sole purpose. And so let us pray as we, we close this out and as I pray that, uh, that God would use you as, as Billy Hanks is talking about here. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, you are a mighty God, Lord. And Lord, we're so thankful for, for just how mighty you are. Lord, you're using uh, each one of us to, 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 to reach the ends of the earth, Lord. You're using us to, to uh, take those divine opportunities in which you have placed, Lord, out of your sovereignty. You have appointed these times in which we're to, to come together with, with these others, Lord, that, that we are to share the gospel with, that we are to, once they receive the gospel, to, to walk side by side with them. Lord, I thank you for for uh, the way that you have designed it, Father, that we would have children in the faith, Lord, Lord, that we would have sons and daughters of the faith, and that we grow, Lord, and, and that we uh, uh, mentor into walking closer with you, Lord. And Lord, that, that when we uh, see a new birth in Christ, Lord, that we have a responsibility, just as a parent has a responsibility for their child, uh, we have a responsibility for this, this spiritual baby. And Lord, uh, if, if we just see a baby that's been abandoned, and Lord, this baby's just there and, and has no spiritual parents, Father, we also have a, an obligation uh, and, and a responsibility to, to, to adopt this, this child in, Lord, that we would have uh, this spiritual child of faith, Lord, and that we would take them and walk with them every step of the way, Lord Jesus. Father, I pray for the listeners today that they were blessed. I pray that you richly bless them as they listen to Billy Hanks Jr., Lord, as you uh, use this curriculum uh, that called a joy, called a growth, and you've uh, literally made millions of disciples through it, Lord Jesus. I give you all the praise for that. Lord, I pray that we would play a small part in that, Lord. Lord, that you would use us to make disciples, and in, in that, Lord, you would first give us a vision to do that, a desire to do that, and understand our purpose in doing that, Lord Jesus. Father, we love you, we thank you, and we ask all these things in the mighty, mighty name of Jesus. Christ, the greatest disciple maker of all time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Again, we just want to thank you for joining Friendship Baptist Church's podcast. We hope you have enjoyed the episode today. We hope you have been blessed. We invite you to come back and listen again. And so, well, this is it. We hope uh, the Lord blesses you this week. And remember, God loves you and so do we.